0: Hi, this is Kate Fairweather. I've got some really exciting news. We will be interviewing a very special guest on our August 15th podcast, and we'll announce the name on our Facebook site, Disaster Tales, and in our group, Disaster Tales Podcast Fans, on June 17th. It's really important for you to join our Facebook group, as we'll be posting information about upcoming episodes, exclusive episodes, and live chats and recordings. To become a supporter, you can find us at www.patreon.com slash disastertales. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, I'm Kate Fairweather, and this is Disaster Tales. My co-host today is... Lawrence Dixon. Lawrence Dixon, he has a medical background, and he's here today to talk about the influenza epidemic of 1918. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing okay. How are you doing?
0: Doing fine. Just been studying about influenza, a massive pandemic that went all over the world. It started in Haskell County, Kansas. What can you tell us about influenza
1: it's an annual break of infection that typically transmitted by air and contact. And it's virulence pattern and mortality patterns change year to year.
0: Now we get the flu every year. There's always a new flu and we have to go get a new flu shot. But the flu is kind of like, you know, just something that you get and get over it. And what made this one so much worse?
1: Well... I guess the first thing is that the flu really isn't a benign disease. A lot of people get it every year, and most of them do okay. But a lot of people, just in absolute terms, suffer tremendously or pass away from it. Mm -hmm. I guess that's the first point, is even the annual influenza is a major cause of morbidity and mortality in the country and in the world. But there's a whole host of different factors that can make a flu more or less virulent each year.
0: Well, now, influenza is a virus. Then what's the difference between a virus and, say, a bacteria that causes pneumonia or something?
1: Sure. So, a bacteria is... You can get into debate about whether a virus is alive or not, but a, a bacteria is uh, like a self-contained cell that, that makes its own things, does its own things, processes its own things. Uh, a virus is... Uh, With a couple bells and whistles, it's basically genetic material that floats around uh, and uh, infects cells and and uses their contents to make make more of itself.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: When they make themselves, they do make um, proteins and capsules and capsids and ways to interact with the environment. But fundamentally, they can't reproduce without a host organism.
0: Okay, so they're kind of like parasitic almost.
1: Yeah, parasitic or... You know, some people would say they're not even parasitic; that they're not even alive, that they just kind of chair their foots around.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, if, <laughs> I heard someone say here recently that they, they quoted a gentleman from the 1700s. It says, life is the resistance of putrefaction. <laughs> All right. <laughs> As I understand it, viruses have different, like, little hooks on them, like a spike and then maybe something that looks like a tree and and they come in contact with the cell. And if it's a cell that they can get into, the spike attaches and then more spikes attach and...
1: Yeah, so cells are, because they're bathed in all kinds of viruses day to day, they are uh, resistant to letting just about anything in. Um, So they have, especially complex organisms, uh, have defense mechanisms. They have gatekeepers, and they have ways to recognize things that they want to let in versus things that they don't
0: want to let in. If it knows that it's yours, it won't attack it.
1: Yeah, if it gets a signal that it thinks represents something that should be inside of it, it'll let it in.
0: Okay. So that's your immune system.
1: Partly, yeah. Partly it's just the cell protecting itself too. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's part of the immune system. I think in influenza, I think they use the toll cell receptors, which is an identification system.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like keys in a lock? Right, yeah,
1: like mm-hmm. keys. Uh, or like knowing the password when you get to the gates.
0: Right. Okay. This influenza was so deadly. Can you tell me anything about that?
1: There's different influenza viruses have different, what they call tropisms, or different areas that they like to live. Mm-hmm. And So you talk about different areas being more prone to transmission, we talk about the upper airway versus the lower airway or in the nose and mouth as opposed to the throat as opposed to down into the the lungs and the big airways versus the small airways. Some of the organisms are easier to transmit uh, when they are spread through the oral mucosa um, or through the upper airways versus down in the lower airways because it's harder to move the viruses around Mm in those locations.
0: Okay. And so this... What they call the spanish flu. and and it struck during the First World War. And I think that the war had a lot to do with it spreading as far as it did. It was a it was a global pandemic. It went completely around the world. But it actually started in Haskell County, Kansas, which was close to Fort Riley, Kansas. And there was actually a documentation in the social register of the newspaper that while the influenza epidemic was going on, because they reported on people being sick when it first started, that one of the gentlemen had gone to visit someone at Camp Riley. Once he left there, people started getting sick. One man report to the hospital, and the next day they had like a dozen the second day and 50 the next day or something along that lines. And it just kind of exploded. But... That was the spring wave, it happened in the spring. The spring wave was not as deadly as the, as the autumn, the fall wave. Do you know anything about that?
1: There's a bunch of speculation. I don't think anybody really knows, but there was a spring wave and then there was a fall wave and then there was a follow-on wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the viruses, because of their nature, are, are prone to mutate fairly quickly. And in the same way that immunization can protect the population, People who become ill in an early wave uh, helped prevent the spread of the disease in later waves. So I think in Scandinavia, there was a stronger early spring wave. The follow-on epidemic that caused so much grief uh, around the world elsewhere uh, in the Nordic countries really didn't cause as big of an outbreak or have as big of a mortality rate. hmm there's that part of it. There's the immunization. And then uh, kind of at the other end of it, the uh, the second wave, second big wave, discarding the spring wave, really wasn't as deadly either. And there's some thought that the virus might have attenuated even in populations that it hadn't hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I, what I mean by that is it just becomes less infectious because it's not as good of a coping strategy for the organism if it kills off its host before it can spread.
0: Now, when they talk about flus, they talk about like the avian flu was H5N1, and this one was H1N1. Can you tell me what the differences are and what that means?
1: So it goes back to those receptors that you were talking about. Those are the big chunks uh, that you can uh, think about the infections in or the influenza viruses in. Uh, so there's like 18 the hemagglutinin types, which is the H, and uh, 11 and neuraminidase types, which is the N. Um, and they're just different ways that the virus has of getting into the cell. They have different tropisms or different areas that they like to infect. There's a little bit of variance based on the receptors in terms of how virulent or how pathologic they are, but it's not one-to-one. Those are like flags that we can look at, but there's other things that go on in the virus that affect its virulence.
0: So what are the signs and the symptoms of the onset of the, of influenza? If you're exposed to, if you were exposed to the H1N1 virus, what would be your first clues? So the problem,
1: and one of the reasons that influenza in general is hard to control is that it's not very different from a cold for most people when they get it. I know that there's dramatic examples of people passing away as soon as they get it. But for the most part, it starts off like a cold. Runny nose, sore throat, congestion, and it just keeps building.
0: Or it headache.
1: Will level off. You can get headache, right? You can mm-hmm. get GI upset. It all kind of depends on, on where that virus decides to settle in you and what it decides to infect. There's case reports of the virus being found in all kinds of different tissues, but primarily it's an upper respiratory infection. Where the air goes is where the virus goes.
0: One of the things I was reading was the doctors would say one of the signs was they'd have mahogany spots over their cheekbones. And then they said the cyanosis would begin and it would like, it would start at the ears and then start darkening across the face. And apparently they got so dark from their cyanosis that it was difficult to tell an African-American from a Caucasian, from anybody else who happened to get it. There's, again,
1: it's all speculative because we're not practicing on people who have this virus right now. Some things that can happen when you get a bad infection, um, and this is one of the ways that bad flu viruses are thought to cause disease, is they cause uh, something called a cytokine storm. Cytokines are one of the ways that your immune system talks to itself and talks to other parts of the body and lets it know that there's infection. But that process can get out of control. Your body forgets how to form blood clots, but it also forms little blood clots everywhere.
0: As the disease progresses from when you present with the headache and the fever and the sore throat and everything, what happens after that?
1: There's a bunch of things that can happen. A lot of times, what the influenza virus does is it causes uh, necrosis of the upper airways. So
0: so that's that, like what necrosis? This is like the,
1: basically dying off of the upper layer of the, the upper airways. mm mm-hmm. And, and with that, you get disruption of the, the native bacterial flora, and it can lead to um, secondary infections. So one of the classic patterns for influenza is you get sick, and then you start to get better, and then 10, 14 days later, you get sick again. So in addition to getting hit with a really bad flu, a lot of people end up with a pneumonia on top of that.
0: As a secondary infection. a secondary
1: infection. It's right. part of the same process, but a different organism causing the issue.
0: So the doctors at the time... The folks that were doing autopsies, they said that for people who had gotten the flu and died very, very quickly, they did not find pneumonia bacteria in their lungs. But the ones who got it and then it took them a while to die when they did the autopsies, they were finding pneumonia bacteria in their lungs. Did
1: they find pneumonia bacteria or did they just find signs of pneumonia?
0: No, they found a separate organism because they thought for a while that that bacteria is what caused the influenza. But it when they finally started really tracking it down, they realized that that was a secondary infection.
1: Yeah, so that I mean, that fits with the idea that it can cause secondary infection. The other thing that, that might be going on is sometimes you can get a syndrome that we recognize now is ARDS, or acute respiratory distress syndrome. Basically, the body dumps fluid into the lungs, um, and you can't get effective air exchange over the swollen boundaries. The
0: 1918 influenza epidemic was important because it had such a high mortality rate. And it was transmitted through the air, correct? It was an airborne virus?
1: Yeah. Its a primary mode of transmission seems to be in droplets or airborne.
0: Okay. So, so that means that if there was people gathered together, they would be more likely to catch it.
1: Yeah. Okay. we talk about uh, control of infection, one
0: of the things is um, decreasing social contacts. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, social distancing. Okay, and it was a worldwide p- pandemic, and it affected the war because it was right at the very end of World War One, and it stopped troop movements, and they also eventually halted the draft so that they would quit exposing young men, bringing them into these camps where people were sick and dying, and finally they talked the war department into cancel the draft until this is over, and then the war was over, but by the time they were going to redo it anyways.
1: Well, yeah, so I think that maybe talking about it being affected in the war, I think they probably had significant interplay. Not only did they have to stop drafting people, so it affected the war, but the war affected its ability to spread. You had people living in cramped conditions with limited hygiene compared to what they normally would have. Uh, And and then populations of people from the numbers that you just stated that were ripe for infection as well.
0: The troop movements is what really spread it the most because when it started in Camp Riley, they had moved people from Camp Riley out, put them on boats, and then the people on the, on the ships got ill, and then they took it overseas, and then it came back. The first unusual outbreaks in Europe occurred in Brest in early April, where American troops disembarked. That's where everyone who came in from overseas disembarked at Brest, which was, I believe, in France. So there was a significant outbreak there, and then once that became endemic to Brest, anybody who came in or was leaving through that port was exposed to the virus. The total death toll for the influenza epidemic, do you have any information on that?
1: Yeah, I had 50 million.
0: Okay. And I have reports as a low of 50 million, and it could have affected as many as 100 million. It did a lot of damage in India. It did a lot of damage to our Native American population. They, they were more susceptible to it, I think, than the rest of the folks here. I know in Alaska, they had massive die-offs from it. They had one town in particular where there was 82 people, and at the end, there was only six left alive. That's a pretty heavy toll there. We talked about the mortality graph being W-shaped. What does that mean?
1: What you're referring to is the age groups who
0: would pass from it. Mm-hmm. So you think about typically a U-shaped graph
1: where young people, uh, really, really young people like children and babies and really old people are more susceptible. One of the things that maybe was striking or emotionally upsetting to people going through this was that there was a bunch of people they uh, they' teens and 20s and 30s dying, uh, and that was the, the middle part of the W on those graphs.
0: Okay. So it would be like high for for under five years old, and then it would go down normally and then go back up when you're in your 60s and 70s because your resistance is lower right. then. But this one, it would go down from five years old and then back up to like 18 to 25 yeah, and then back down and up again when you're old. So. Why did it affect the people who were in that age group? Was it only because it started in the military and was going through the military, or was there another reason?
1: It seems likely that strong invocation of the immune responses, cytokine storms, the ARDSs, uh, all of these things were probably contributing to people who have a normal robust uh, immune system uh, uh, having more difficulty with it. Okay. Uh, because their immune system being healthy was more damaging
0: When your body went to attack it, it it attacked it so hard that it killed them, basically. Is that right?
1: You you could say that. I I, I guess the other thing is that just the whole process of getting ramped up to fight uh, was so damaging to the rest of the body. It was a maladaptive immune response, so it wasn't like the body was just attacking the virus. It was not responding appropriately to the virus. It was
0: overreacting. Overreacting. Okay. And so that caused damage to... The body as well. And in the lungs, you said ARDS, which is acute respiratory... Distress syndrome. Okay. And in that case, that actually caused more problems in the lungs?
1: Well, yeah. So the, the idea is that it, it, again, makes it difficult to absorb oxygen, and exchange gases. It just makes the lungs really uh, a lot more fragile, too.
0: Well, the lungs are like, they're kind of like branches in a tree. And when you get to the ends of the twigs, where they would be... That's where the oxygen's exchanged, correct?
1: Yes. Yeah, so there's this little sacs called alveoli where the blood comes in and the oxygen leaches into the, the capillaries and poison gas CO2 comes out.
0: Okay. And so what the ARDS that you're talking about, the acute res- respiratory syndrome, that would what fill up the alveoli? So
1: Yeah. It's a lot of extra fluid. There's a, there's a whole bunch of complex pathophysiology that goes on with it. But the, I guess a good way to think about it is just a lot of fluid being mm-hmm. generated in uh, the deep tissues of the
0: well. So more than your body could dispose of, what gets shit. Okay, okay. So yeah, that that would kill people for sure. They're basically we're drowning. Hi, I'm here with my friend Jerry today, who is a very good friend and she's also our one and only treasured sponsor.
2: Hey, Kate.
0: And I have a cold today, so if I sound like a man, that's why.
2: She's a very pretty man, though. So.
0: I, I am. I have really good hair for a man. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what we'd like to do today is talk about your real estate endeavors.
2: Yeah, so real estate in Amarillo right now is really cracking. We've we've got a great market uh, for both buyers and sellers. We have properties that uh, are affordable and are in good condition, and then we have a, a great market for folks looking to buy those properties, so I feel like it's actually a pretty balanced market right now. So. Um, My big thing right now, I have been helping folks go out and find the perfect house that meets their unique situation. I've had clients that had some really interesting situations, and we just stay on the trail until we find that perfect spot for them.
0: Well, that's really good. I know that housing in a lot of other places is much more expensive, so if you were selling a 1,400-square-foot house with three bedrooms and two baths, what would that normally go for?
2: I would say right now, if I were going to list that house, I would probably list it somewhere between the 170 to 199 range, probably more toward the 170 199 tends to be more the four-bedroom, two-bath. And I encourage my sellers, when we are listing a property, I spend time with them looking at things that they may want to put some money into for curb appeal and for saleability of the house.
0: What would you say to our listeners who are in California and other states that aren't Texas and have, unlike Texas, a state income tax as far as moving to Amarillo?
2: So there's two things you're going to encounter that are different. And having moved from California myself to Texas, I can address that pretty well. People talk about the outrageous property taxes that we have in Texas. To that, I say this. If you compare what you pay in property taxes to what you are paying in income taxes to the state, I can tell you it is largely less than that. Of course. And we in Amarillo actually have the lowest property taxes in the state. So Amarillo is a great place for that particular issue. The other thing that we have, again, across the state, and Amarillo is a really good example of this, you get so much more house for your buck than you do in California. I, coming from Northern California, Grass Valley specifically, and if there's anybody listening in that area, what's up? (laughs) But there... There is a a real shortage in that area, frankly, of affordable housing. And what I call affordable housing, I'm talking about $300,000 and less. We have properties there that are three bedroom, one or two bath, as you were mentioning before, that are going for $450,000. That's almost half a million dollars for that house. Here again, as I said, you're going to get the same house for 170 to you know 190 if the market's super hot.
0: Or a much bigger house for your 450 thousand dollars.
2: That is a, a true story. And For 450 thousand dollars, that's palatial in Amarillo. It just is. about. Those it houses is. are huge. Yes, yes. they are.
0: So how are they going to contact you if they want to
2: do that here at Amarillo or the surrounding area? Right. I am really easy to reach by email, which is jerry, J-E-R-R-I, at jerryglover, G-L-O-V-E-R, dot com. Or they can reach me on my business line at 806-881-6810. And I can also receive text via that number.
0: Okay. Well, thank you, Jerry. And we will talk to you next time. Thanks, Kate. I look forward to it. So one of the reasons that this flu spread so quickly was because it, was, it spread with the military and they were mobilizing all over, all over the world. They went to Europe and then they came back, like we talked about.
1: I would put back on that a little bit. I think that when you think about influenza pandemics and epidemics, they tend to spread regardless of whether there's a war or not. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a really transmissible disease. When you talk about the R factor, which is uh, an index of infectivity I think measles has the highest. Mm-hmm. Uh, to kind of give you an idea, it's around 12 to 18. They have uh, Ebola. This uh, uh, epidemic that they just recently had had an R value of 1.2 to 2.5.
0: And that's because it wasn't airborne; it was bloodborne, correct? Well,
1: it's now it doesn't have to be airborne to be a devastating uh, epidemic. You think about the cholera
0: epidemics, and I don't have numbers for them here mm-hmm. uh, but they were spread fecal
1: aura and they killed thousands millions
0: right and that so, was a sanitation disease
1: it was a sanitation disease but it still was was a really big problem
0: mm-hmm.
1: when you think about flu and, and these R factors react to kind of the you know, controls and systems that society has
0: so what, what's the scale for those is it 1 to 10
1: so it's it's a logarithmic scale so it goes down below 1 and above 1 and 1 I think it's the transition point for transmission okay sustained transmission Diphtheria is six to seven, flus two to three. There's some estimate that it was higher in this epidemic. Uh, Some some estimates, I think, were around four. So it was going to get around either way, and it was going to get people sick either
0: way. Yeah.
1: And I think that there's some suggestion that that's the case in that a lot of the uh, Pacific islands, uh, you can talk about how terribly wiped out they were. It only takes a handful of these viruses to get into a population than the machinery of replication
0: takes over there was one town in colorado who completely cut themselves off once they heard about the pandemic and they you know they were like at gunpoint no you're not coming in here and they did manage to miss it completely but they had to completely cut themselves off from any contact with anybody for quite a long time and that kind of quarantine, with self and post-quarantine I know that there's a problem with quarantines as far as like the government creating a quarantine because you have people who are don't have the disease in the same house as people who do and that makes them more likely to get it. And then also people tend to sneak out of quarantine sometimes and then they go and spread the disease and nobody knows they're out there. What do you think would be a proper quarantine response for something like this?
1: I think that quarantines in general are not practiced. I think the last uh, big quarantine was for Ebola and then maybe before that was for SARS. There's not a lot of experience with large-scale quarantine um, since the time of uh, early 1900s. A lot of the quarantines that used to be implemented seemed to uh, affect, and this happened with the 1918 outbreak as well, that seemed to affect uh, ports of entry, so where the disease was gonna come in and where the disease was going to make its initial jumps. So quarantining sailors, it gets to be a lot harder to do now because of how much more interconnected everything is. That's not practical, uh, and it incurs its own costs when you start to quarantine or shut down airports and seaports and, and movement. I mean, people aren't as resilient as individuals because we have become more reliant and resilient as a society. And so if you start quarantining, placing severe limits on uh, the ability to, to move then you limit people's ability to get foods and medications and, and that kind of thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Other things that you can do, when one is social distancing and at a governmental level, uh, this is, is maybe one of those least harm kind of things limiting social gatherings of people but even when you start to talk about that there's a pretty significant impact on GDP.
0: That would be gross domestic product, right? So economic effects.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but economic effects are, are real effects, and they have yes. other they have other effects on public health and access to resources. I think a one to two percent uh, or one to two week episode of social distancing, like closing the schools and closing public events, had a measurable impact on the GDP. I wish I could find the numbers for you, but I don't have them here in front of me. In uh, the study, it's public That's health okay. study in Britain. Mm-hmm. It's a modern study, so that wasn't uh, back in the 1900s, it's now.
0: Well, at the time, the head of the National Health Department and the Surgeon General was named Rupert Blue, and he was just not responsive to anything. For example, in Philadelphia, they were doing liberty bond parades and gatherings, and it was considered more important to get those liberty bonds in to fund the war than it was to keep people from getting the disease. And and he did not issue any kind of health warnings or instructions or anything else. The other doctors that were leading the crusade against the influenza were really frustrated with him. Like I said, in Philadelphia, they were having a huge parade to go and do an outdoor gathering to buy the Liberty Bonds. And they told them, you can't do that because you're, you'll spread the disease, but they felt like the money was more important. So,
1: Yeah, I'm not a policymaker. Uh, there are certain <laughs> realities you have to weigh against each other, and there's always judgment calls that you have to make without the benefit of hindsight. If you're an Asian at war and you're trying to raise funds for troops, and, and to give you an idea like the uh, common mythology about World War II, uh, the United States was not prepared for war, uh, when they went, the pre-war strength of the U.S. Army was 400,000, and in one year they had raised uh, 4 million troops. Uh, a lot of that likely contributing to the spread of the camps because people were living in tents while they built the camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, your way uh, funding the war effort and, and getting these troops housed, and uh, against the idea that maybe this is a really bad infection, um, uh, and maybe you've heard about other bad infections your entire career as a general. Uh, I don't know. It becomes a difficult decision.
0: Colonel Charles Hagedorn was over Camp Grant, and his camp was incredibly over capacity. The crowding in the barracks was so bad that they had greatly reduced the military standards for how much space each soldier is supposed to be allotted. And they were, and it was very cold, so they were huddling around stoves. And some of them were out in tents sleeping, and they would come in and try to get warm. And so there was a large number of these people in Camp Grant, and so many people died, and we'll go over that here shortly, that the Hagedorn began to feel depressed and guilty and eventually shot himself.
1: They had, um, kind of on that same vein, they had Camp Humphrey in Virginia, kind of looking back, a natural experiment that was conducted. And they looked at the amount of uh, space each soldier had. So you talk about the overcrowding in these camps. And they found a pretty dramatic difference with just a small decrease in the amount of crowding. In one part of the camp where each soldier was allotted 45 feet of personal space, the attack rate of influenza virus was 27%. Uh, and in another portion of the camp where they had not even double the amount of personal space and not very much by your standards or my standards, but 78.5 feet, uh, the attack rate was only 2.5%. Well,
0: that's a big uh, difference. That's
1: a huge difference. Uh, and, and it kind of goes to to talk about it or goes to show um, uh, the effectiveness of just giving people's space.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, because if it's an airborne virus, it's going to have velocity when you cough. And if it falls out of the air after a certain distance, farther you are away, the less likely you are to get it.
1: So it's kind of important to make a distinction there when they talk about airborne viruses and infectious disease. Airborne is just floats around, not suspended in droplets and influenza. And droplet spread infection is suspended in droplets and drops out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of the influenza viruses are, are truly airborne some of them are not just to kind of make that side point
0: but, mm-hmm. so which one was this one? Um, I don't know uh, from what, from one, my reading I think they, they're pretty sure that it was airborne so it went from Camp Riley and it went to Camp Devons which was in Massachusetts near Boston it was a big place but when the influenza started there they actually had 1,543 admitted in one day. It wasn't the first day. Usually the pattern for this was like one or two soldiers got came in the first day, and then it would be like 15 the second day, and then 80 to 100 the next day, and and so it was it was a really truly geometric progression. Since so in September 22nd. of the camp was on sick report, and 75% of those people were in the hospital. On September 26, four days later, the staff was overwhelmed, and nurses and doctors were starting to get sick and die. Around that time, the Red Cross was searching for nurses. There was a huge shortage of nurses. They sent 12 nurses over, but before long, eight of them collapsed with influenza, and two of them died. And this base hospital at Devon's was designed for 2,500 people. And at the peak of the outbreak, it held more than 6,000 people. And they were put together very closely. They started to um, put sheets between the cots. And and this is a situation where they would see somebody turn blue, get dark. They knew they were going to die within the next few hours. So they waited, then they moved them out and put a sick, sick person right back in that same cot. They actually had to build more buildings to house the hospital. So this it came on fast, and it got really, really big. Philadelphia, just as a little side story, I, I remember reading one time that because of the way the flu acts, it goes into the cell, and then when it's ready to spread, what does it break the cell open?
1: I think that that's the way that the flu virus works is it breaks okay. the
0: cell open. Okay, so this woman was standing at a bus stop, And she seemed perfectly fine and she just dropped dead. And they think that probably the reason for that was because all the viruses broke out at the same time and her body was flooded with viruses. So overseas, they were already having problems over there because of the the trench warfare and things like that. The soldiers were infected on the ships, especially in the trenches. It became very, very contagious. They were trying to clean up the trenches and one of the things that I read there was that the army ordered that they try and eradicate the rat population in the trenches and the people on the ground there came back and said we don't need to eradicate the rats we need to control them because the rats are the only thing that are disposing of the bodies so they actually encouraged the rat population there as far as disposing of corpses which is kind of creepy but I guess it makes sense in a way Were survivors more likely to have contracted and survived the influenza epidemic of 1889? Do we know if that, we don't know if it was related or not. There was some speculation on that. I'm thinking that that was, that it really wasn't, but.
1: Previous exposure to the different subtypes of influenza, there's some thought that they provide
0: resistance
1: later later in life.
0: So if it was similar enough to the 1918 flu, they might have had some resistance?
1: Maybe. Okay. Uh, But I don't know anything about the other influenza virus.
0: And debilitating after effects. Now, after the 1918 flu, there was some speculation about it causing other symptoms, like meningitis?
1: I would not expect that to be a follow-on effect. Um, uh, There have been uh, influenza viral particles, uh, I think, isolated in CSF. It's not unreasonable to think that... CSF? I'm sorry. The fluid that bathes the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's not unreasonable to expect that there were cases of influenza-associated encephalitis or meningitis, but and those could certainly have. If you had an infection like that, it could certainly have lasting effects. But I don't know.
0: Well, there's some anecdotal evidence that that some people did have. It was encephalitis, not meningitis. Did have some encephalitis-like symptoms. They had the personality symptoms they had the physical symptoms there's always been speculation about that having influenza like that makes you more susceptible to stroke
1: there's actually strong recommendations uh, for immunization uh, if you have coronary artery disease i think the idea is just that if you've got Vessels that are critical, or close to critical, and then you put them under stress, they become critical.
0: Okay, so it would actually like...
1: Uncover existing disease. uh, Right,
0: and uh, exacerbate them. Make them worse.
1: There's a a pretty large mortality effect, even with routine influenza. We talk about routine influenza being deadly in terms of uh, immunization in that setting, uh, preventing significant mortality and morbidity.
0: Let's talk about how influenza gets to be influenza. Because it seems like most of the influenza actually starts in animals, like birds and pigs and bats, and
1: so the the natural reservoir for the influenza virus is waterfowl.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so ducks, geese, ducks, geese, that kind of thing.
1: It's not isolated to any one organism, so it can thrive another organism. So you get different subpopulations when they mix. I think the thought is that's when the, these gene recombinations occur and, and allow the variation that allows seasonal.
0: Okay, so so pigs can have the flu, right. and, and pigs can die from the flu just like right. people do. But, but it's normally that's pigs only get the pig flu and humans get <laughs> human flu. So what happens with the, uh, the ducks and, and the pigs and stuff is that the humans are in close proximity. and so they get the virus and it mutates in them and will put together like a human virus and a bird virus kind of break up and then reform to be both.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's basically the influenza virus split around these subpopulations and uh, they have different tropisms in the same way they have different tropisms for your airway for the different organisms, but they can jump from species to species. Kind of when they mix, this is the idea is that when they mix, they have more genetic variability and they can recombine uh, the H's and N's and other things uh, mm-hmm. about them um, to make them more easily passed to, to humans happens predictably enough and when you think about how many viral particles are involved in any one infection um, i don't know the number but it's billions mm-hmm. at least if not more um, then it's it's not hard to imagine that any one of those particles develops uh, some new mutation that gives it advantage in one over and some over another
0: what causes the mutation is it just recombination to
1: be honest i don't i don't have a succinct answer I, I, it's probably combination of a natural mutation, rate. I know that there's some triggers uh, in genetic material to increase mutation rate in most organisms. Probably a lot of it is just random
0: mutations. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, let's see. And, and then... And
1: gene reassortment.
0: So, okay. So what about vaccines? I mean, when you take a flu vaccine, it, and it's not always for the flu that you're going to get, What? tell me about flu vaccines.
1: They're really good. And when we talk about... Ways to uh, modify the risk for uh, influenza. We talk about quarantine and social distancing. uh, The cheapest and most effective way, uh, even in off years, is is probably vaccination. So I'm just kind of put that plug out there. If you want to talk about drastic measures like quarantine, the first thing you got to do is is mandatory vaccination, which I think would make sense. Right. Uh, A lot more sense than mandatory. incarceration of innocent (laughs) individuals. But right, so the the flu vaccine is specific to the projected influenza virus every year. Um, And um, again, because we don't have crystal balls uh, in in the field of medicine, you can't say for sure what that circulating influence is going to be when you make the vaccine because you have to make it in advance. Uh, And so you make an educated guess and some, some years it doesn't match well in other years it does. So they're supposed to be working on a vaccine that targets something common to influenza viruses. And if they were able to do that, then you could immunize against influenza and not have to worry about influenza anymore. You could potentially um, eliminate it from the human population or severely eliminate its ability to spread in the human population.
0: So it would keep you from getting one specific thing that's common to all the influenza
1: yeah, yeah. I haven't read a lot about it, but I would imagine that's what they're doing. They they are working on a vaccine that would, that would provide immunity against influenza in general.
0: And so for now, you recommend that people get an influenza vaccination every year?
1: So I don't, I don't want to make any recommendations. Um, <laughs> but what I would say is, uh, unless there's a strong uh, medical contraindication, I would seriously consider, because it can be a really severe infection, mm-hmm. uh, and it can uncover other serious... Uh, Serious disease
0: processes. So, if, it, if there's no reason not to take it, like it, it will make you sick, then it's probably a good idea to take it. As far as the government went with this, like I said, the government really didn't do any quarantine activities except for finally they did it with the military. They finally stopped shipping people around. They also finally stopped the draft temporarily so that they wouldn't be bringing new people into a situation where they were exposed to the virus because it ended up to be such a deadly virus. What do you think would be the most effective actions for a government to take?
1: Uh, Mandatory vaccination.
0: Vaccinations, and then um, what about the social distancing?
1: I think that social distancing is far more tolerable and probably more likely to be effective towards its ends than
0: strict quarantine. Well, I think right now with the measles epidemic that we have, uh, because people have not been vaccinating their children for measles, which is a whole other lecture with me, they are doing some social distancing. They're closing schools and, and events and things like that.
1: Yeah, I think that's reasonable, but it's not without cost. and it's It's a shame that we can't avoid this cost with vaccination.
0: Yeah, and uh, we actually have done that because at one point we were pretty much eradicated of measles in this country.
1: Yeah. The CDC actually has links to the Bureau of Commerce where you can see some of those W-shaped graphs and you can get rates and death tolls for the influenza outbreak. And I think you had mentioned that there was maybe some fudging of those numbers uh, related to the war effort. Uh, But they actually wrote a a summary uh, uh, article a year or so later. In any event, they had about 400,000 extra deaths that weren't accounted for by the general uptrend uh, in deaths from the previous years. Uh, And this was continental U.S., so this was not Europe where they were fighting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But buried in those same uh, all-cause and uh, mortality cause of mortality reports, they have the the measles listed in their year and it's four to 5,000 people died uh, right. in a much smaller country every year. And those were the people that were dying. They weren't the people that were suffering serious comorbidities as a result of having contracted measles, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I know we're talking about influenza, but we're talking about infectious disease and we're talking about um, really easily preventable infectious disease. This is maybe a, a hidden lesson uh, in the same reports.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I noticed was that they would had a measles epidemic in the camps the year before, and they managed that fairly well. And so when the influenza epidemic came along, they thought that they could manage it the way they managed the measles. But the differences were the fact that it was influenza, for one thing. But the other thing was that they had so quickly brought so many people together they were improperly housed they didn't have adequate medical facilities and things like that so not only was it the disease being different that caused the deaths but also the ability to respond to it yeah
1: so there's even though they had done that the year before there's a significant difference between a static peacetime military and uh ramping up active wartime military and so i like I said, 400,000 before they declared war, and a year later, 4 million. Mm-hmm. So 400,000 people uh, in well-established camps with well-established facilities is probably what they were dealing with the measles outbreak in.
0: Mm-hmm. So they were, basically, they were overwhelmed. It overwhelmed everybody. Now, one of the problems that they had with the military in the United States and in the other countries, too, was they had a control on the press so that they wouldn't be passing bad news that would hurt morale. And that's one of the reasons that it's called the Spanish flu, was because when it got to Europe, they all had a tight hold on their news outlets, but Spain did not. So they started reporting all these flu cases. And so people started to associate that with Spain, and it became the Spanish flu, even though it started in Kansas. So what about the medical response? Diagnosing the flu was that once it started, it was pretty easy to diagnose it.
1: Well, I think that when you talk about epidemiology, you talk about diagnosing, you always think about the incidence and the prevalence of a disease. Why they needed more caretakers than doctors is because when somebody gets sick with this thing it looks like flu and everybody has it, then that's what they have. You just treat it. Mm-hmm. As somebody didn't diagnose it. You just need the medicines and the manpower to treat it. Mm-hmm.
0: Also, monitoring and reporting. When, they first, when this first broke out, they were thinking it was either the flu that had been the year before, because they had a really light flu outbreak the year before, and they also thought that it might be a bacterial pneumonia. What effect would that have on mitigating the? I'm talking about trying to mitigate the spread of the flu. It
1: seems like you would still think it's the flu. Probably would be behind the ball if you weren't expecting a pandemic flu.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I don't, I don't know that clinically that it would make a, a lot of impact.
0: A lot of them searched during this and after for something called Pfeiffer's bacillus, which they thought caused this influenza mm-hmm. because they found it in so many of the autopsies. But once again, in the ones that died rapidly, that it was not there. So they spent a lot of time chasing Pfeiffer's bacillus when it was actually a virus. As a medical person, what do you do to protect yourself in a situation like that?
1: Um, hand washing is always the biggest thing. Because mm-hmm.
0: um, a lot of the doctors and nurses died.
1: Yeah. So hand washing, yeah. and the other thing is, is uh, droplet precautions. So uh, wearing a mask is to pick up any droplets that might be up in the air um, so that when you breathe, those are filtered out.
0: They actually did start making and wearing cotton masks back They had never done it before, this, this occurrence, and, and they started doing that. The Red Cross started making them, and the Red Cross was a, a big and powerful organization back then, mostly women, and they did a lot of bandage rolling and they involved the entire community It was it was a big deal in most places and so they someone came up with the idea of using a mask and putting it on the patients and so they started making thousands and thousands of masks i'm not sure what they did about their hand washing i don't think that was really when did they actually start doing that
1: i think florence nightingale started with the basic hygiene and she was in turkey during the uh during that particular war. So I think it preceded this. I think the nursing practices for hand washing were probably there. I think that it was realized in the surgical suite sometime around the Civil War, but I, don't, mm-hmm. I couldn't tell you exactly.
0: Okay. The only other protection would be to be vaccinated if there's a vaccine available.
1: So, I mean, there's other things, but those are the big three things. I would say hand washing if you're on somebody that you know, has the flu, keeping your distance or wearing a mask or both.
0: Yeah, personal protective equipment. Yeah,
1: and the, the biggest thing the biggest thing is always hand-washing for any general infection prevention. Uh, but um, for the flu is just get the flu vaccine. If it's not going to make you sick, then just get the flu vaccine.
0: How much lead time do you need on that?
1: Um, I think it takes about two weeks, really, to confer some resistance.
0: Two weeks. So you'd have to do it two weeks before you were
1: exposed. It's right. Sometimes we do post-exposure vaccinations for certain things. There's probably some benefit to having the immune system have that uh, initial recognition with with the amplification, but really you want about two weeks lead time.
0: Well, so let me ask you this. If a vaccine works by activating your immune system, Mm -hmm. but the immune response is what was killing the younger people, what would the vaccine do differently?
1: So the vaccine is not the whole... It's not the whole... um, influenza virus and it's not an active virus i think some of the nasal sprays are live vaccines um, but they're they're not the same virus Mm -hmm. Uh, and so it's not affecting the immune system the same way and it's not a sustained uh, exposure to high levels of the uh, immunogenic materials
0: the other medical response was the mass care and the emergency hospitals that they put up I think the biggest problem there was they just couldn't staff them. They were begging for doctors. They were begging for nurses. They asked the Red Cross to help them find nurses and train nurses. And, and they were even asking for people who had not finished nursing school or people who had ever helped anybody who was sick. Eventually, they started asking for that. And the problem with that was that, well, first of all, there just wasn't enough bodies. But it also exposed them to the virus because their personal protective equipment was not, well, they didn't have any. Basically.
1: Right. I think that comes down to human nature and whether you're going to want to watch somebody die and not do anything about it. And I think that, yeah, it's not an ideal situation, but I think it, to me it makes sense that that's what you would do.
0: Well, and, and nurses are different than doctors because nurses provide that immediate individual support. They tend more to be able to keep an eye on the patient and look for changes, whereas the doctors are spread so thin that they're trying to see everybody in. Right. So having the nurses is a really good supportive program. Let's talk about public education about influenza, messaging. And when you have an epidemic coming up like that, I know the swine flu in the nineteen sixties, that was there was a problem with that with the messaging. There was like an over response to it coming, and it made people you know not want to take it as seriously because it wasn't as bad as they said it was going to be.
1: They call that alarm fatigue, and it's a real problem. Uh, if you wolf too many times, then nobody believes you when the wolf's there. This is a story from childhood, but it applies to, to messaging about influenza vaccine, about hurricanes, about anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really the people generating information uh, and disseminating information have a strong responsibility that is as important as any of the other interventions in getting it right or at least being... Uh, completely honest and making sure they're understood about how how they're being honest Mm -hmm. in terms of what they know and what they don't know.
0: So, yeah, because I know in emergency management we have the same problem. When you message for a hurricane warning or you message for tornadoes or floods or whatever, if you do it too much, people won't listen. And if you don't do it enough, people get hurt. So you need to find a balance there, and it's very difficult. I know it is. But I think that that was another one of their problems there because they had to the messaging issue, but they also had the secrecy issue. And so I don't know how that actually affected it, but it did play out to seem like there was some problems with that. Sure. Let's talk about Camp Devons, because that was in Boston, and that was where the troops went after Fort Riley, after Camp Funston. They had a really bad response. It was exacerbated by the fact that there were naval ships coming in and spreading it in the population as well. And they did try to quarantine some of the ships when they came in after it had started, but by then it was pretty much too late. And Camp Devons had a a really high mortality rate there. And then there were some people from Camp Devons who were sent to the officer school at Camp Grant. And the influenza started in the population of the officer school. So by not quarantining their men in Devons, they actually spread it to another camp. And in that camp, just for an example, they had 108 people report to the hospital in one day. And then the next day they had 194, and the next day they had 371, the next day they had 492, and the next day 711. So it just kind of exploded. I mean, literally like an explosion, and they didn't have room for them. They didn't have enough beds. They didn't even have enough building for them. So they started converting barracks. They converted 10 barracks into hospitals. And then after they got some of the people who had had the influenza and gotten better, they had them build nine more barracks and because there was just not enough room. And of course, and then every time you get a new space for a hospital, you need the personnel. And they were having so much trouble finding personnel that it was almost like that You were pretty much on your own with the flu. You either lived or died basically because your body could combat the flu. The support that was available was pretty much inadequate, even though they were trying as hard as they could. Sure. I know that my grandmother actually contracted influenza when she was in England. She was working as a cook in England. There was two things she said. She said that she got sick and and that the people who she was working for actually took care of her. And the other thing was that that really surprised her because she expected, because she wasn't part of the family, they would have put her out on the street. So back in 1918, I don't know what kind of society there was there, but she had that perception that she, they wouldn't feel the responsibility to take care of her while she was sick, and she was really surprised that they did. So in Camp Grant, where they had this massive explosion, the commander was Charles Hagedorn, Colonel Charles Hagedorn, and he thought that you could fight the flu like you could fight a war. And and they'd made it through the measles epidemic the year before, and so he was confident that they would be able to do it. So there were some measures that he didn't take, like trying to expand the, the buildings and trying to expand the support staff. And, and he became so depressed as this went on, and more and more people were getting sick, and more and more were dying. He actually killed himself he sent everybody out of the, his office building and then they heard a shot and went back in and and he had committed suicide and i think that there was a lot of people in that were in that position that that felt a lot of guilt because they either thought that they could they could do it by themselves or that things were out of too much out of control or things like that so and when you're in command or in charge of things like that i think that it's it's really hard to try and make the right decisions.
1: I think you don't have to be in command to be in a position where this is overwhelming. I mean, if your brother and your sister die, or if your good friend dies, this is a devastating thing. If you know that it's part of this whole process, it's happening everywhere. Right? It's overwhelming for anybody, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I think that as a as someone who is a leader or in charge of something like that, the only thing you can do is you can do the best you can with what the information and, and supplies you have at the time. Do the best you can with what you got where you are, which was a Teddy Roosevelt quote. That's all you can do. You can't know the future, but you got to deal with what you got in front of you. So the other influenza, I know that I don't know if it was two thousand eleven when the when the bird flu was in the news. It wasn't killing a lot of people, but it was killing eighty five percent of the people that that got it and that started in uh, the Guangdong province in China and a lot of the flus have come from there because they live very close proximity with their livestock and during that epidemic it started out anyways China actually killed a million chickens to keep it from spreading because they knew that it would eventually get into the human population. A lot of chickens. That's a lot of chickens. (laughs) that's one of the geographical areas that seems to keep popping up with flu that part of China also the open market with the live poultry and live swine I think that having an open market like that spreads it among the animals and can also spread it to the people who are in the market
1: yeah probably there's just different standards for hygiene
0: mm-hmm.
1: you need to be careful because it starts to be cultural practices too and you don't want to just crap on somebody's culture um, I'm not suggesting that you're doing that, but it just, <laughs> it, it, yeah, somebody has a way of life. You can't just go in and tell them that they're doing it
0: wrong. No, that's, that's imperialistic, isn't
1: it? <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that mixing of the viruses is what causes trouble, so. Ready? Um, that also sounds like they had a, a method for dealing with it uh, the bird flu outbreak. Um, I don't think there was a bird flu pandemic.
0: No, it wasn't a pandemic, but there was an outbreak. And among humans, the mortality rate was very high at the beginning. Yeah. So I think as far as government goes, they can do planning. They can plan for pandemics and do exercises for pandemics. Like the CDC several years ago did a did an exercise where zombieism was the disease. And so they they tracked a disease that would act like zombieism had to be spread, blood-borne pathogens, aggressive patients, and things like that. So I think that's important, not zombieism, but the fact that you exercise and practice and find out where your shortfalls are. It's good for the government to try and figure out what their most effective actions are. What is quarantining, What do they need to quarantine? Do they need to support the vaccination program? Do they need to educate the public?
1: Yeah, I mean, those all seem like good measures, one of the things that I worry a little bit about is, for a while, the CIA used vaccinations as cover for uh, covert activities. Mm-hmm. Start to worry a little bit about what that's doing now, and whether somebody's doing the same thing to us. It's all tinfoil hat territory. But
0: uh, so, what would that be?
1: So, my, my thought is just being honest and forthright in matters of public health, at home and abroad, from a government perspective.
0: So, trying to trying to manage the press during a war. The censorship is, is not helpful.
1: I think internally is less important than externally. I, I think you got to be fair and forthright with people and, and not change the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. Again, not something I know a lot about, but it okay. seems like bad news to me.
0: Well, it can be. And I think it had a lot to do with the spread of the disease in sure. this instance. Also, the monitoring and response agencies, who does the monitoring and response on that? I
1: think the CDC does. There's actually... Um,
0: and that's the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, mm-hmm. right?
1: And they're trying to develop prediction models and trying to develop a ways, better ways to monitor it. Right? They have a couple different systems. I'm not super familiar with them, but there's um, for certain infectious diseases, there's sentinel systems where they look for cases. And,
0: and so some of the diseases are reportable diseases, that if, if a doctor finds them, he has to report them to the health department. Measles is, and some of the sexually transmitted diseases, and yeah. other... I don't think influenza
1: is. So some of that's also done by your uh, state health. Like The reporting typically goes to the state health department.
0: But that information goes into the CDC.
1: Yeah. I mean, it goes into a database, I'm sure, where everybody can look at it. When I think about managing the response at a national level.
0: So do we know how long the virus can remain alive outside the body?
1: 24 hours on surfaces.
0: That are cold. Hours
1: in the air. And better if it's cold. Mm-hmm. Um once it's in contact with human tissue, the lifespan diminishes significantly to the order of minutes.
0: Underlying conditions that are made worse by influenza, what kind of?
1: Pretty much anything. Uh, the things that we have recommendations on are for, for heart disease, but it puts a tremendous stress on your system to have that kind of an infection, uh, and it's liable to uncover illness elsewhere, especially illness that's kind of um, perched on the edge somewhere.
0: Okay, so like you could be sicker if you had heart disease, or, or if you had some kind of lung disease like COPD sure. or partial kidney failure or something like that?
1: I would, yeah. I mean, I don't know the data on kidney failure, but I would, I would imagine that it would raise, certainly infection raises your risk for acute kidney injury, which raises your risk for chronic kidney disease.
0: Okay. And that, so because it puts a stress on your body. Mm-hmm. And if your body's not well, then right. it's going to do more damage. Right. What about self-quarantine? If you're sick, should you try and stay away from people?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's not going to cover an incubation phase or a non or asymptomatic phase of illness. Mm-hmm. But if you know you're sick, then it makes sense to try to not make other people sick.
0: Okay. So when you're talking about the incubation period...
1: Or what? carrier phase. so you, Sometimes you can have a carrier phase. I don't think that really goes on with influenza, but just in general, since we're on the topic, mm-hmm. um, you can have an infection but not manifest any symptoms of it um, and still be shedding uh, and still be contagious. classic case for that is hepatitis B.
0: Okay, and and typhoid Mary kind of thing, where she had it, but she wasn't didn't have any symptoms, she wasn't right. suffering from it, right. but she was giving it to people.
1: So to come back to the influenza, so in Texas, uh, novel influenza
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: or influenza associated pediatric mortality. So the kid dies, or if you think you have uh, influenza, that's not the same as what you're typically seeing, then that's
0: reportable. But they don't have to report just regular flu. It does not look like it now. Okay. Well, that makes sense, because if there's a flu that's killing children, then we need to know.
1: Right.
0: And that that goes on to the whole system of educating people, closing schools if you have to, things like that. Right. There was something different about this flu that it made it so incredibly deadly. The other thing is about taking the bodies, because when you have something like this, you're overwhelmed with corpses. And, of course, you want to do autopsies on as many as you can. But there was, in this case, people from the Rockefeller Center for medicine and from john hopkins they would go and they would have to step over piles of bodies just to get into the room to see the autopsy and so when you're dealing with that many bodies how do you dispose of them
1: that's a good question that's not that i know a lot about Mm -hmm. Um, i would say that you really don't need to do autopsies are when there's a question or if you're trying to define an illness Mm -hmm. so an individual investigator may want to do as many as possible And if you're not sure it was flu and you're worried it was something else, then you might want to do an autopsy. But otherwise, there's no reason to do an autopsy on Mm -hmm. everybody that's died of any specific disease.
0: I know that you can incinerate, you can cremate people, you can also bury them. But burying that many people is very difficult. So I know that sometimes we'll just have mass graves. So digging a hole... Seems like digging any
1: other hole. Um, Just mechanistically, it doesn't seem like it's that complicated. But in terms of respecting the rights traditions of people who have lost a loved one, it seems a lot more difficult. But you're going to have that problem with any mass disposal.
0: Well, thank you again for doing this. I appreciate your medical input and expertise. And it's nice to see you as well.
1: Thank you. If I could put one more plug out there for measles vaccination. That number in 1918, people who died from measles was 8,000. At 806.
0: And that was here in the United States?
1: Here in the continental United States. Even though influenza that year was was a much bigger issue in terms of the associated causes of infectious illness, it was still a major player.
0: And we've developed vaccines for the measles and for typhus, for typhoid fever, and for yellow fever, and for measles, and for mumps, and, and for all those... That, Whooping cough. Whooping cough actually killed my grandfather's twin brother when he was 10 years old. People right now don't understand. They're finding out with measles. They don't understand how deadly these diseases are because they've never seen them. Polio, for example.
1: Well, and they hear stories about everybody having them. And it's true that people did have them and did okay. But a larger, not a larger, but a large amount of people did not. Mm-hmm. People forget that. Because then people passed away, they didn't live a life and you just don't tell those stories because
0: they weren't there. That's right. Well, and and my son was not able to take the measles, mumps or bella vaccine when he was little. And the doctor told me that he would be herd vaccinated because all the people around him were vaccinated. But now with the anti-vaxxer movement, which I do not understand, there's a lot of people who could be vaccinated who are not and that herd vaccination has disappeared which is why measles is spreading so rapidly right now. Okay, well, thanks again. Thank you for listening to Disaster Tales. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Our website is www.disastertales.com. Music by Stephanie Cerny. If you have a disaster tale you'd like to share, you can send it to us at kate at com. Today's disaster tip is about influenza. The Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, lists take three precautions on its website. Besides everyday preventative actions like hand washing, covering your sneezes and coughs, and staying away from sick people, the number one recommendation is to take time to get a flu vaccine. Nothing prevents the spread of influenza like a population that's immune to the disease. It's important to go and take that flu vaccine every year. It not only protects you, it also protects those around you who may, for medical reasons, be unable to take the vaccine themselves. The third action is to take antiviral medications like Tamiflu as prescribed by your doctor. Take good care of yourself and those around you. Get vaccinated!